Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt free. Hello, Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. Jewelry isn't a gift you give just once. It's a way to remind your loved one of a beautiful moment every time they see it. Blue Nile can help you find the gift that says how you feel and says it beautifully with expert guidance and a wide assortment of jewelry of the highest quality at the best price. Go to BlueNile.com and experience the convenience of shopping Blue Nile, the original online jeweler since 1999. That's BlueNile.com to find the perfect jewelry gift for any occasion. BlueNile.com. Cool fact, a crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Also, you can get health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage for you. Learn more at UH1.com. Parliament House in Canberra is almost like a high school musical. You've got your actors on the stage, you've got the understudies, you've got the chorus crowd, You've got the agents, right? And everyone's waiting for someone to slip so they can say, oh, I could have done that better. Right. That is Sam Dastiari, and this is episode 202 of the Osher Ginsberg podcast. Welcome to the Osher Ginsberg Podcast. I'm Osher Ginsberg. This is episode 202 of the show featuring Australian politician Sam Dastiari. Find him on Twitter. Sam, D-A-S-T-Y-A-R-I. S-A-M-D-A-S-T-Y-A-R-I. That's where you find him on Twitter. He's quite active. If you like him on the show, if you don't like him, whatever, just let him know. Uh, Thank you so much for being here. Thanks for being a part of this show. Thanks for helping me make this show every single week. Um, If you don't listen... I don't do it, and you listen, so I do it. If you do listen and you do enjoy the show, I did want to let you know that I am involved in another podcast project that is actually up this week. Uh, it's a podcast project I'm doing with the ABC, which is the Australian Broadcasting Commission in Australia. It's kind of like the BBC in the UK. It's uh, government-run. It's got a mandate, uh, very, very, very strict on what they commission and what they don't commission. Um, but the show is called Tall Tales and True. You can find it uh, on the same app you're listening to this podcast on. You can find it in, in iTunes or, or wherever you listen to podcasts. Tall Tales and True, just look for that. The artwork is a cockatoo, which is a bird. And it's um, storytelling. A storytelling show, but this season, this third season, focuses on mental health and living with mental health. So uh, it's something very close to my heart. Uh, I'm really grateful they approached me and asked me to do it, and I certainly hope you enjoy it. You can find it wherever good podcasts are heard. Um, I know you were listening to last week's show with Maz Compton, but while you were listening to that, I was on holidays, which was very, very nice. I got to have 10 days away with my family, which was great. Um, we went to Fiji, we went to Tonga, we swam with the whales. It's everything that you could probably imagine it was. Though one thing that I was not prepared for was uh, seeing 
the I mean, essentially, we're talking about uh, low-lying South Pacific countries, okay, um, countries that are very small, countries that are basically islands. Uh, Fiji is is not huge, but it's it's not tiny. Um, but Tonga is most definitely it's just small patches of land um, just dropped in the Pacific Ocean, and both of these countries are very susceptible to the effects of climate change. And we definitely saw some first-hand evidence and most definite effects of climate change in these two countries. And that that was very confronting to see. Um, uh, you know, I've heard some podcasts in the States talk about, well, why don't you, you know, it's all right, there's plenty to go, we can just move inland. Well, that's fine if you live in North America and your culture still exists 100 miles from the shore. But if you live on an island that's a kilometre wide and everyone and everything you've ever known is there, you lose everything. You lose your country, you lose your culture, you lose everything. And that's already happening. It's happening in Kiribati, it's happening... And some of the outer atolls in Samoa, um, climate change is real as shit. And I know right now there's a lot of debate going on in Australia about this new coal mine, this Adani coal mine. But seriously, man, it's it's not okay. <laughs> and uh, it might be it's a it's a big it's a global issue. It's very difficult to you know to to, to confront. Um, but you know you got to ask yourself what you can do and what what we what you can do what what I can do what we can do is we can. Uh, reach out to uh, a politician who represents us and ask them what they're going to do about it. But there's also a little things you can do. You can eat less meat, uh, which uses a lot of resources and creates a lot of greenhouse gas. You can use less single-use plastic, plastic bottles, straws, shopping bags, that kind of thing. And you can you know, try and make some renewable energy choices in your life. I'm not saying you have to, you know, 100% convert to a subsistence farming existence. That's impossible in a modern society. Um, but there are definitely things you can do, and through your economic pressure as a consumer, the suppliers of those products will eventually understand, and, you know, that's a way that you can help. Um, so, yeah, it was pretty confronting to me because, you know, that's a big trigger for me, So, but it was still uh, incredible, and it was great to be definitely in Fiji and definitely in Tonga. It was great to be immersed in those beautiful cultures, those um, beautiful island cultures, and these are countries that need to be protected and people that need to be protected and uh, very vulnerable because there's not a lot of economic growth going on in a place like Tonga. And so it's a, there's a lot of people who could be in a lot of trouble in the coming years if we all don't do something and, and try to help them out. Uh, sorry to bum you out straight off the bat, but, you know, that was a big part of my holiday standing there and going, oh, well, where did the coastline used to be? Over there? Oh, what's it doing here? Yeah, it was, it was a bit intense. Um, what did I want to tell you about? Oh, yeah. I haven't had a hangover in a long time. You know what a hangover is. It's, it's when your body reacts to having drunk heavily the night before. But I went to, my, uh, I went to go see my psychologist this week. Um, I'm seeing her weekly at the moment because we're just kind of working on some fairly specific stuff. And we dug in the dirt, she and I. We dug in the dirt, and I like—I had a hangover. My my body felt the effects of dredging up some darkness, um, going through some old trauma. Um, it was really intense. Like I couldn't relax. I couldn't. I felt like my left shoulder was trying to invade my left ear. Uh, my left hip felt like it was trying to sandwich itself against my right hip. It was. Uh, it was really, really uncomfortable. And um, I tried to meditate, couldn't meditate. I tried to nap, couldn't nap. I was, you know, running in circles. It wasn't good. 
I remembered, what do I normally do at this point? What do I normally do at this situation? And um, I know we've been talking about it a bit in the last week, so I just, I know what to do. I'll just do something physical. So I went down and I, I got on my bike, my uh, my push bike's on a, um, a wind trainer, which is basically you take the back wheel off and you affix the chain to the servo and as you ride, it's like it turns my bicycle into an exercise bike. And I just got in there for an hour, smashed it for an hour. And wouldn't you know it, I felt better. And I've just got to remember that. And I wanted to let you know that we all have to remember that, that your brain already has all the things it needs in it, hopefully, unless something's really wrong. Um, your brain has a lot of the things it has in it already there. A lot of the things that you might need to feel better are already in your body. But to unlock them, you You've got to do something with your body, and, and that can involve physical exercise. And it, it's extraordinary. You know, I, I was on there for an hour, I got a sweat up, I got my heart rate up, and then for the rest of the night, I was just like swimming in this endorphin rush. And I just got to remember that, that when I am stuck in that situation and my, I feel awful and I couldn't couldn't concentrate and I couldn't write anything, I couldn't do any emails, it was awful to be in my skin. Just to remember, that's right. I just have to, you know, snap my body out of this current state and I'll just go and do something deliberate in another state. Uh, it was a really empowering moment. But I just wanted to share that with you. Yeah. Anyway. I told you about the other podcast. I told you about Tonga. Oh, let me tell you about my guest today. Oh, I'm stoked this guy managed to come on the show. Sam Dastiari is an Australian politician. You can find him on Twitter at S-A-M-D-A-S-T-Y-A-R-I. He represents the state of New South Wales, which is where Sydney is. He represents the state of New South Wales in the Senate, the Upper House, and he's a part of the Australian Labor Party. Sam's a young man, younger than me. He was only 30 when he won his seat, and he has made quite a name for himself in the four years or so since he's been in office. Sam, famously, is a non-practicing Muslim, and Sam's drawn uh, an interesting amount of attention from some people who can't quite conceive of that as a concept. Um, I will let Sam explain it, but we do get into it. He's a fascinating guy, very charismatic guy, politician, who knew? But, yeah, very charismatic guy. Um, and he has got quite a story, uh, certainly about him, his life, his parents, how he came to Australia. And in the comfort of my kitchen here in Bronte in Sydney, up in my apartment that I share with my wife and child, uh, we had a cup of tea, and he were and I, he and I were able to talk at length uh, about his story. Now, politicians can talk; that's no secret; that's their job. But what you're going to hear is the full flow of a, a very smart and very curious man as he verbosely crafts his points of view and outlooks on the world. I don't ask a lot of questions in this one; it's a lot of Sam just kind of going for it, which is great, actually. It's less a string of sound bites put together. And, and more like that Mars Volta record that's just one 45-minute-long track. So it's a, it's a different kind of conversation than one that you normally hear on this show, but I'm, I've left it mostly, Andy and I, my, Andy, my producer, we've left it mostly intact just to kind of give you the experience of what it's like to engage Sam on a, on a day like the day we talked. He came around on a weekday afternoon during the school holidays, so he had his uh, assistant with him, but he also had a six-year-old daughter with him who um, occasionally you'll hear noise from them, but I think Andy um, is going to remove most of that. But you might hear occasionally him referring to his kid and his assistant. But very handily, his his daughter took uh, our dog Frankie 
um, out to the park and they ran around in circles for an hour and Frankie didn't move for the rest of the day. So thank you, Sam, for tiring out our dog. Now, Sam, to me, came across as a straight-up guy, um, but he came across as a man who genuinely cares about people and genuinely cares about other humans, even if those other humans don't ascribe, subscribe to his particular political outlook. Um, compassion is an interesting thing and a quality that I feel that we as humans need more of, and Sam's definitely got it. I certainly hope you enjoy this florid conversation with Sam Dastiari. So how are you, Sam? You, you're good? Good. Are we, are we live? We're, we're recording. Okay. We're away. You, you're well? I'm fantastic. School holidays. We've had a visit from your daughter. Yes, my six-year-old. I'm on daddy duty at the moment. I, I did this thing that you should never do. I holidayed in Canberra on the weekend with small children and uh, to the Floriard Festival, which is the, again, Canberra has a giant flower festival and it's a big fucking deal. Like it's huge, <laughs> right? Yeah. And uh, look. I've got to say, it's a fantastic little festival, but there is only so much for so long that small children are interested in flowers. It's like, wow, this is a pretty flower bed, Daddy. That's a pretty flower bed. Right, now what are we going to do for the next eight hours of our day? Uh, and I went there, and one of my mates, uh, Nazim Hussein, was headlining a comedy show at the flower festival. And the idea that someone's like headlining a flower festival was just too good an opportunity to miss. So, uh, so I spent the weekend there, here now, school holidays, uh, which is the only time in Sydney that you can actually drive around. And uh, here with you. It, but yes, ours, our 13-year-old is, um, I think she went for breakfast at her friend's house because uh, we were on holidays. We've been yep. away. We've been in Fiji and Tonga for 10 days. And um, part of that was without Wi-Fi. Oh, wow. How many days? Uh, a number of days. So the young lady's been quite cut off from her yeah, community. Was that harder for her or harder for you? Oh, her. Can you do it? Yeah, actually. Yeah, yeah. Um, I get a bit itchy, you know, my hands get a bit itchy every now and again because constantly reaching for the, yeah. um, I mean, I'm, you know, prone to uh, compulsive behavior through a trick of brain chemistry. So I do have to keep an eye on it, but I even actually, I actually have a burner phone that, um, in case you really need to, it's got a, like, like one of my brothers has the number, Audrey has the number, Audrey's parents have the number and that's it. Okay. Wow. Um, so I can turn this one off and. But I do still find myself preaching for it. I find I, myself preaching for I it. I can't do it. I can't do it. I um. Okay, so about seven weeks ago, I was born in Iran, and I went back to Iran with Australian story. And the, the federal parliament was very clear about the rules of going to a place like Iran, which is effectively you do not take any device. They're just unequivocally clear. They're shit scared about someone breaking into the parliament house network. It's happened in the past before. So they're like, you leave everything here. So you don't take a phone, you don't take anything. And you're all of a sudden in a place like you're in the middle of Iran. And it's not that there isn't phone reception there, because there is, because, you know, there's a mis misconception, by the way, the third world doesn't have mobile phones. The so third world has more mobile phones than anywhere yeah. else, right? Like, yeah. Like, especially and, in a, and faster internet yeah, than and, most of Australia. And cheaper. And cheaper, right? That's the bit <laughs> I don't get. And cheaper. 400 but, million handsets in Nigeria. Yes. And, <laughs> and also, they, they use, you know, phone credit as a currency. Hmm. Um, but there, you're in there, and you're in the middle of Iran, and I'm in the middle of this kind of you know, small kind of fishing village or town now that I was born in and realizing that I'm just itching to get my mobile phone. Mm. And you go, how unhealthy is that? Mm. Like how, how dependent have I become on this? And I can't not, you know, one of my mates, Ed Husick, federal MP, just quit Twitter, right? And he just, I hate it. He goes, the, he goes, you know, he goes, look, nothing against Twitter, each for their own, but that 140 characters were now 280 characters of hate and all the kind of vile that he was getting. He just thought it's not worth it. He goes, I'm not enjoying this anymore. But 
I don't know if I'm in these places because I enjoy it or because I need it. Mm. And it's a very different question, right? Because a lot of it, I mean, I've seen, you know, your stuff, um, you know, I mean, a lot of it's fun and obviously part of it's with the program and the show and part of it's, you know, contract and that. But how much hate do you get on that? On Twitter? Yeah. Um, less, a lot less than I used to. And I'm pretty, I take the James Blunt approach um, when it comes to Twitter. Um, if what, anyone to start abusing people, no, just say, <laughs> you know, uh, what is it that you're terrible? That's not what your mother said. It's really quite, it's, it's, it's based and it's 15 year old boy stuff, but, um, you know, there's a mute button, there's a block button. Uh, most, most of the time people are, people are mostly okay with me. It's, it's when, um, you get the keyword searches of, uh, like bots and things like that. Like, say, for yeah. I, I'm quite, um, un, you know, unashamedly so. I'm 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 pro same-sex marriage. Yep. I'm pro immigration. I'm pro multiculturalism. Um, I'm pro, uh, you know, basically giving people the benefit of the doubt and you know, education over fear. And so, anytime if I write the word Muslim in a tweet, some person whose Twitter handle is Chuck Norris holding a firearm and all their timeline is just retweets of, you know, yep. Ted Nugent or whatever, will, you know, write something horrible, hashtag MAGA. I'm like, yeah. you just sit on the internet and wait for someone to write a keyword and then write something horrible. You have no vested interest in me or what I do, but you're just there to feel some sorts of power. And I do, I do wonder about like whose life is at a point where the only way they can feel in any sort of control is by waiting on the internet for someone to type a keyword and then going into attack, even though they don't know who they are or have no interest. Well, I tried to do this thing. I actually tried to track them down. So this is the bit that I, I, I got obsessed by this. Jay and Silent Bob style where yeah. they go. Well, that's, well, 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 two things. First thing, um, I get a lot of – all the stuff I get tends to be the kind of anti-Muslim stuff. Mm. And by the way, there's this weird thing that people don't seem to understand. The concept of being a non-practicing Muslim seems so strange for people. Like they'll they'll constantly – I'll say something and they'll say, oh, but, you know, fake Muslim, and they'll show a picture of me drinking a beer, which is exactly what a non-practicing Muslim would do, you know, mm. like, like, you know, which is, you know, again, such a strange concept. Everyone I know is some form of non-practicing Christian of some description or at some level, but the idea of being non-practicing Muslim is so alien. And I get a lot of that hate. I get the anti-Islamic hate, in, in, you know, and they kind of, oh, it's you and Wally. Wally gets the most, and he's not even on social media. Uh, a few other people get a, get a fair bit too. Um, but so I said, I said, I must, okay, who are these people? Because, you know, you can actually, people aren't embarrassed. They're not hiding. I mean, you do get the bots, but you actually get a lot of kind of real people. So I started tracking it back and started finding out who these people were and then going back, finding them through Facebook, finding them Google, kind of looking at their profiles. And my impression was there was going to be these bunch of fat, you know, overweight, bald blokes in their 50s sitting in mum's basement in between watching, you know, Pornhub would mm. jump on and start attacking people as part of their rage about their own lives. And you know, it's not the case at all. There are people with families. There was a paramedic. There was a school teacher. And you wonder, how does this happen? Like, do they get up in the morning, take their kids to school, you know, do a bit of shopping, maybe work for a few hours, come back home, jump on the internet, uh, you know, wish that my children get raped like Muhammad's daughter, you know, Aisha at nine or whatever, and then go back to helping the neighbor next door. You know what I mean? Like, it, I don't understand the psychology mm. that drives people. And I think there is this untold story. There was a, there was something really powerful I thought that came out of Charlottesville in the US with all that hate. 
And it was in my observation. It was an observation. This is the guys with tiki torches saying yep. Jews will not replace us. And they said the difference between There's them. There's some very nice people amongst them. Very, very nice people. <laughs> some of them, some of the best, some of the best people. And, and the point someone said that, and again, this wasn't my observation. It was, it was a US commentators. You know, 50, 60 years ago, during the height of the Ku Klux Klan, the, the, that, that period, white power period, um, they felt so ashamed. They felt they needed to hide their faces. And that's mm. what it was about. Now, the internet has made them feel so empowered that they can actually show who they are and they feel like they're part of a community. And as much as the internet has done obviously great things by bringing people together in that, it has allowed that hate. And, you know, uh, again, I mean, do you get much mail? Do you get physical hate? Uh, not anymore. I mean, you're hard to – you don't have an easy address. Oh, Channel 10 might. Yep. Channel 10 might, but, you know, they don't, I don't see it. Yeah, it okay. does. I'm after the perfect piece of hate. See, I collect it. My idea of the perfect piece of hate is an A4 page, right? All of it in caps. Um, handwritten. Ver- handwritten, verbose, random words underlined, and then they run out of space and they start writing in the margins, right? <laughs> <laughs> and they get conspiracy theories. But I get a lot of that. I get a lot of people sending me things like bacon in the mail, like because you're a Muslim and pigs mm. and, you know, this and that, like, like that's somehow going to massively, like, you know, mm. shock me and offend me. But I tell you what, um, so I get a lot of that. A lot of po- politicians generally get a bit. Um, the worst that I've seen is Ian Ali, who's a Muslim MP from Western Australia, because the female politicians also get some really sexually charged stuff. Mm. Um, the blokes don't really get that. I mean, you probably do, but the rest of us don't, right? <laughs> um, so we don't get, you know, like, so we don't get, it's not kind of, it's just kind of hate. The women get this kind of very, I don't know, the right word I suppose is rapey kind of stuff. Yeah. It's really, really frightening. Dark. But I mean, take Gillard. Um, when Julia was prime minister, she was probably the first Australian Prime Minister that had real security concerns. They mm. had real concerns beyond the general Australian Prime Ministers are always a target, of course, but around those kind of frightening lone fathers kind of groups, those kind of male extremists. And that's what the female MPs have to deal with. They have to deal with a lot of that and a lot of some really weird kind of sexual power stuff. I'm mad at my ex-wife or mad at my mum, but I can't bring it out on them, so it's you. Yeah, well, the ones who turn around and go, I'm sorry, I'm sure there, are, there must be a whole bunch of legitimate dads that have legitimate custody issues who care themselves why these people are spokesmen, who say the court won't give me access to my child, so I'm going to drive a car into Parliament House. Right? Like you know, And some of these people, are, they've come and visited me, and boy, after this podcast, they're going to come after me. Um, but some of those lone fathers groups, you look at you know what they say, and you look at hear their stories, and you go, Thank God the court is not giving you access to your child. Like, wow. You know, uh, you know, uh, I'm sure some, there must be some amongst them with legitimate concerns, but the, their spokespeople are just horrible. Mm. So it's interesting you're talking about non practicing. Um, I wonder how many people who, you know, have their Twitter avatar of, you know, Jesus holding a Bible or whatever are typing that while eating hamburgers on Fridays. Of course. Of course. You know? You know, I mean, the only thing you can be sure of is most of those people haven't had sex before marriage, but not through want of trying. No, 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 they have. <laughs> no, trust me. No, during the um, uh, like in the last few weeks before I went on holiday, I was posting a lot of pro yes, but yep. yes stuff on Instagram and stuff, and mostly as a way to lure, well, not lure, but invite people into a conversation, and so yep. they would open with a opening salvo of "No, it's wrong. Jesus says not," and then okay, I understand you feel that way, and then start to engage people in, in this situation, and you. Probably wouldn't you? Probably wouldn't be amazed, but I was certainly amazed by this one particular woman who was extraordinarily devoted and good for her, but had no idea that Jesus was Jewish. Yes, yes, no clue at all. And yes. then, good on her though. Three or four comments later, it was like, actually, I went and had a look, and you're right. It's like, yeah, yeah. 
Yeah, the Last Supper was Passover. Yeah. What the fuck do you think he was doing? <laughs> well, and, and you're completely right. And there's um, there was a great book written by this academic Reza Aslan, which is um, I think it's called Zealot. And effectively, he talks about you know there were three things we knew about Jesus. You know that he was a Jew. Uh, that he, the time period that he lived in, and that he was a reformist trying to reform Judaism. Yeah. Right now, he was leading a reform movement through Judaism, and that ended up becoming Christianity. But in his lifetime, he was reforming Judaism and turned into something else. Right, and the outcry by the American evangelicals about yeah. how dare you say that he's. I mean, you know, these aren't contested facts. That's actually just a, yeah. you know, regardless of what you believe in terms of faith and spirituality, there was a historical figure called Jesus who lived in that period of time who was a Jew trying to reform Judaism. And you're right, they turn around and they kind of go, this is shock. This how dare you say these things mm. and how, yeah, you know, and this outrage and outcry. You kind of feel like yourself, you know, you're entitled to your own opinions, just not your own facts. <laughs> yeah. yeah, yeah. Well, there's a T-shirt, isn't it? Um yeah, I've been to Jerusalem a bunch of times, yep. um, and I've stood on this. I've stood barefoot on the steps of the what is it? If that's the Western, the Western Wall. Wall. Oh, yeah. If that's the Western Wall, the Southern Wall of the Temple. There's these three bricked up um, entranceways, where, as a good Jewish boy, Jesus would have gone. Yep. Uh, every festival, every holy day, he would have walked there from Nazareth, which yep. is about a two day walk, and he would have walked up those steps. Yep. And he would have done his religious duty because he was a, you know, and it's like he was here, you know, it's, you, if he was yep. at, at all, he would have been here. And, and I did find that, you know, kind of interesting <laughs> that people in this, you know, they're so, people are often so quick to, uh, it's like anything really, people are so quick to grasp onto the, you know, the, the, the one door in the, in, the, in the Titanic, you know, the one thing you can hold on to in the, in the freezing ocean that can give you some sense of safety that they'll ignore, um, uh, other facts uh, around it, but uh, honestly, I was really thrilled that this young lady had gone and had a look and gone. Actually, no, you're right, which is uncommon. It I is. Find. It's a very. Um, I think we're heading to a very, very ugly space too. Yeah. And I think where we're heading is kind of a and this conversation or around society. Yeah, generally. But I'm not. Okay, okay, okay. You've got this guy at the moment. Australia's an amazing place and amazing story of multiculturalism. Um, but there is a dark underbelly in Australian history. Very, very dark underbelly. You know, it started off with the treatment of Indigenous Australians, which has obviously continued on with other types of problems throughout. There was white Australia. There was treatment of, you know, the first um, uh, Chinese Australians who came during the gold rush. Um, there is there is horrible parts of our own history. I mean, you can't ignore the fact that in a place like Tasmania, effectively you had Indigenous genocide. I mean, there's yeah. no other way of describing a word where you've killed every single Indigenous person there. At the moment, um, I think what's happening in kind of multiculturalism and how people are responding to it. And, you know, obviously I've got my opinions on Hanson and others that I think really propagate this stuff. But it's in a really, really dark place. And I, I don't know, Asha, I worry that things are going to get a lot worse or they get better. And at the moment it's now, it's the code words, right, that people now talk about. So the the blame people at the moment are the Muslims. They're the ones who are getting hit the most at the moment. The scapegoats. Scapegoats. Yeah. That, that's kind of, that, that has changed over period. You know, don't forget 20 years ago when Pauline Hansen first came on the scene, it was about Asians. Swamped by Asians. Swamped by Asians. And now it's about Muslims. But here's the thing. People aren't allowed to say what they really sometimes want to say, and they use code words. So a lot of people don't feel like saying, don't want to say, I don't like Muslims. And nor should they say that. But they don't. So they say things like, I've got a problem with halal certification of food. You know, it's all these code words that get you. Like, like these people have ever, you know. What's that called, on, dog whistling? Yeah, well, it's, it's beyond dog whistling. But, yeah, right, it's code words. It's dog whistling, but it's code words, right? They say things like, you know, no one ever complains about 
when you talk about a mosque, no one ever complains about the mosque. They complain about the parking. Hmm. You know, it's always true. No one complains when it's a fucking Bunnings, right? <laughs> Have you tried to park at a Bunnings on a weekend, right? Like terrible traffic, right? No one complains. But if it's a mosque, it always goes this. And at the moment, so the mosques were doing sausage sizzles, Sam. Well, that's well, be a halal sausages. Halal it'll sausages. be a different story. Um, and right, and I, I, I kind of, I really worry. I think at the moment there is, and we talk about online hate. We talk about social media hate, and you know. Um, and where it's all heading. But in our entire discourse at the moment, you can see the stuff that's coming out during this same-sex debate uh, and, you know, the, the the kind of horribleness of different parts of it. And, and by the way, the, the yes, the intolerance is everywhere. Um, frankly, I'm, I'm maybe I'm a bit biased here. I do think that there are elements of, of the no campaign have been as ugly, if not more ugly, in my opinion, more ugly than the yes campaign, but that's just my personal opinion. Um, but there is a really, really dark underbelly at the moment that's coming to the surface. And, uh, our political discourse is, is fucked. There's no doubt about that. And I don't know. I don't know if there is a way of fixing it because it's well, least, so polarized. At least we have. At least we have minor parties. Yeah. At least. I mean, having spent ten years in the states, it's absolutely hopeless. It's hopeless. There are people who will basically shove cotton wool in their ears the moment they see someone with a red tie. Yeah. If they're wearing a blue tie or someone wearing a blue tie if they're wearing a red tie. And, you know, uh, what and about all statistics the, all, that, all debate goes out the window. Well, it's more taboo now in America, and there were some statistics on this, for interpolitical kind of marriages where, you know, Republican family or Democrat, <laughs> that it is interracial. You're shitting me. No, 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 no. It's actually, it's a bigger kind of, it's a bigger kind of taboo in, in terms of um, um, political differences and that. Yeah. And, but, 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 Osha, this is where we're heading. Yeah. Right? And I'll tell you why this is where we're heading, right? We are heading to two Australias. So you t- take America as an example. You have parts of California and New York which have booths that deliver 92% Democratic votes. And then you go out to, you know, southern states, places like Arkansas, um, um, uh, Alabama, or other places where you can get these booths that give 92% um, conservative kind of Republican votes. And these are two different Americas. What's happening now is that you are having these incredibly wealth concentrated in the cities, uh, multicultural, multi-ethnic, big cities – and then regional Australia that is a completely different environment. Mm. And we are now break, we're at that fork in the road where we're heading into these two different countries. Just a couple of stats that blew me away. 40% of people in Sydney and Melbourne were not born in Australia. 40%. That's the last census that came out like a month ago. It's mind-blowing. Mind-blowing. 25% across the country, 40%. But if you're going to somewhere like uh, northern Queensland, like Rockhampton or somewhere, it's about 8 to 10%. Mm-hmm. Right? And by the way, that 8 to 10% tends to not be – 10-pound poms who are in their 60s now have retired, who were not born in Australia, but, you know, when we think of migrant and ethnic, okay. we're probably thinking post-Italian kind mm. of, you know. Brown people. Yeah, brown people. Or, you know, people with funny food. Not the, People the, with funny the, food. The British food's just shit. It's not funny. It's just shit. It is terrible, um, yeah. You know, they can conquer the world. They can't make a dish. Um, but and – that's, and that's where we're heading at the moment. And the multicultural project in Australia is – um, is being refined to these inner cities and all our other problems too. You talk about wealth, income inequality, it's that you have these, it's not that there isn't wealth. It's that you have these incredibly wealthy inner city communities and that's not being spread. So I asked myself this question. I said, okay, where is it in New South Wales that has the biggest one nation vote and has the lowest one nation vote? You know, just out of interest. So I've got the parliamentary library doors research for me. So the biggest one nation vote in New South Wales was in Parks, which for, for your listeners is about a oh, five hours drive from Sydney. If you've seen the film The Dish, that's yes, where it's Yes, The Dish. The, the Dish, yeah. Titman Yeah, it's got the Parks Elvis Festival. Yeah. Right? Um, uh, it's, you know, 
middle of New South Wales. Yeah. One Nation got 25% of the Senate vote without running a campaign. And where was the lowest One Nation vote? It was in Annandale in Sydney. Mm-hmm. Now, Annandale is demographically whiter than Parks, right? It's just rich white. Annandale is one of the wealthiest suburbs. It's, um, it's got the most number of PhDs per square meter of anywhere in Australia. Uh, you know, people, again, if you're listening, don't know Annandale. It's kind of between kind of Glebe and the city. You're, you, you can't get a house there for under two million these days. Uh, freestanding house. I mean, they aren't freestanding houses, no. but terraces are two million so to start It used with. to be an industrial area. Yeah, so yep. and yeah. it's all been gentrified. It's yeah. young professionals, but it's young, it's white, mm. right? By, you know, by, however you want to define it, it's white. And yet you go out to somewhere like Parks, which is huge indigenous communities, which has ethnic communities, um, and they're getting a quarter of the vote. And you realize, okay, we make a mistake when we look at all of this just through the prism of race. That's part of it. Right? Like, don't get me wrong. When you look at extremists in Australia, and I think One Nation, if they're not extremists, certainly dance with the extremists, there is a component of their vote that is the racist vote. There is. There's about 5% of the Australian population that's just racist. Right? And the racists are voting for One Nation at the moment. But why are they getting 10 12%? Why in someone like Queensland they're getting 18%? They build on that. They mm. start off with the racists as their base. And it is disadvantage. And, again, we are becoming two Australias. And I don't know what the answer to this is, Osha, but I think it's going to head to a very, very ugly place very soon. Um, and you just have to look at what happened in the U.S. And, again, people, all my friends in the U.S. are like, oh, you know, after um, Charlottesville and that were like, oh, you know, look how terrible this is. Well, people in Australia keep saying, oh, it can't happen here, it can't happen here. You go, fuck off, it can't happen here. I was in Sydney during the Cronulla riots. Mm. It, can't, it happens here. Mm. It's the same thing. It's the same thing. Yeah. And we talk about Muslim extremism as we should. We highlight how horrible it is as we should. And yet somehow when it becomes, you know, white extremism uh, or white nationalism, somehow that's like, oh, no, no, that's not a thing. That's just individuals. That's this, that, this, that. And that's what really frustrates me because we should be calling out extremism for wherever it is. And we have a problem in this country with extremism, regardless of where you want to, where your politics are. We have a problem here where, you know, the enemy is extremism. The enemy is intolerance, intolerance of different ideas, intolerance of different views, uh, regardless of kind of how you want to classify it. Which country in the world has got multiculturalism best, do you think? Um, I think when we do it right, we do it best. Okay, this is our difference between everyone else in the world, right? Um, in America, they have this thing called the melting pot. Mm-hmm. They've all heard the term the melting pot. And what it really means is this. If you go to America, uh, you can become an American, right? I can go, someone born in Iran, I can go to America, I can be an American. Um, but what, what the melting pot theory is this. You go in there, you put your culture, your identity into this big pot that is America, they mix it around, and out comes an American. And that's why if you go to someone and say, oh, you're an, you know, um, a Pakistani-American or Indian-American or an Iranian-American, they should say it as an insult. No, I'm an American. How dare you say that? You know, I'm an American, this and that. And, you know, Ronald Reagan used to talk about this, actually, and he was right, that you can become an American. If you went to Japan today, Osha, uh, regardless of the fact that, you know, you're successful and wealthy and all these kinds of things, right, all those things, you would never be treated as Japanese. No, they're very, very insular. Yep, because they see identity based on ethnicity, mm-hmm. right? Koreans are the same, the Chinese are the same, the Han Chinese, you know, it's, like, it's a very, very different kind of culture. You will never be, uh, our Southeast Asian neighbors, I think we're going to have an amazing life, they'll treat you really well, but you'll never be Japanese, mm-hmm. you know? If you're an Algerian living in France, you can live there for 100 years, your families, and there are Algerians there that have been there for, mm. you know, they're never French. They're Algerians living in France. There's Chinese Australians who have been here since the 1840s. But here is the difference between our story. The Australian multicultural story says this, when it works well. You maintain your culture. You maintain your identity. 
you maintain your language. And insofar as that doesn't conflict with our universal values, mm-hmm. right? And, you know, people have a different interpretation of that, but, but basically they're kind of liberal, smaller liberal values, democracy, fair go, women's rights, um, you know, equal opportunity. As long as you're not conflicting with them, you're adding to the Australian story. And that is a sense that you maintain identity and culture and that. You know, my six-year-old daughter came home the other day, about a month ago, and they were all given this toy by one of the kids because it was some, I think it was Latvian National Day or Slovakian mm-hmm. National Day. Kind of, honestly, I don't even know what it was, right? Yeah. But she knew about it and they learned a song because one of the parents had come from Slovenia mm-hmm. or Latvia or, or, or some Finland, I can't remember, right? And that's the... That's great. That adds the experience. Mm. That adds the Australian experience, right? That's the Australian multicultural project when it's working. When it's working, you know, we the success of Australia since white settlement has been our ability to embrace wave after wave of migration, not our ability to reject it. That's not to say there hasn't been a dark racist underbelly uh, at different times. White Australia, I mean, the Labor Party that I love, right, was founded on the principle of white Australia. Uh, the trade union movement that has done so much for working rights and conditions in this country for opposed all migration for, you know, uh, a century on the basis that, oh, these foreigners are going to come here and take our Aussie jobs. I mean, the only people taking Australian jobs at the moment are parliamentarians and senators. All <laughs> 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 these bloody New Zealanders and Brits coming here taking our polit- political jobs. Um, uh, but, you know, there is this dark kind of underbelly, but we do it well. Uh, the Canadians do it quite well. Mm-hmm. Um, I have to say the the Germans have actually done it really well over a long period, and people like even Merkel and that who you know were supposedly these far right wingers by by our standards are quite good, but you know it hasn't been perfect here. You know, you know what worries me is we're going to look back on the treatment of refugees now, uh, and I hope that we don't look back in thirty years in our history and go, well, that was a dark period too. It 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 hurts to know that a country that uh, you know I I wasn't born here. And uh, my parents brought me here when I was a kid. I had no choice in the matter. Yeah, how old were you when you came? I was a baby. Yeah, I was a baby. My brother was about three, I think. Yeah, <clears throat> but I was, a, I was, I was a baby. Yep. But both my parents were refugees at one yep. point, so they, you know, both spoke funny, but met in London. Yep. Okay. So, um, that our country that opened our doors to this massive wave of Vietnamese and an enormous amount of trouble in the seventies, yep. um, and let. I think it was like 160,000 people. Yeah. They, were, they were stranded on some island in the Philippines, I think, and they didn't know what to do with them. They did a massive airlift. They brought all these yep. people. They're the same country that would do that. Less, less than a generation later, turns around and spends nearly $10 billion imprisoning people who are, you know, on some far-flung rock um, to die, unfortunately, yeah. as we saw yesterday. Yeah, um, or kill it, himself. It, yeah. It, so it's, it, you know, it, it hurts. Okay. It hurts, Sam. Well, I mean, uh, t- tell this story, right? Reza Barati was murdered on Manus Island. That's a fact, right? Uh, Reza Barati was murdered by prison guards on Manus Island. And I asked myself this question. Reza Barati was born five hours from where I was born, in Iran. I came to Australia in 1988. Uh, what is the difference between my journey and his journey? My parents were very politically active. They fled Iran. Uh, we came under the family reunion scheme simply because it was easier to come than the refugee process. People always ask me, are you a refugee? And I always say, we didn't apply under the refugee protections. I've seen people with much weaker cases than my family get accepted. I've seen Occasionally I've seen a case where I thought it was even stronger and not get accepted, so you never know. But we came to Australia because we were accepted here three weeks before our Canadian papers came through because uh-huh. we'd applied to a couple of different places. He yeah. came in first, so we came here. Mm-hmm. And, but I asked myself this. What is the difference between my journey and Reza Barati's? 
why is it that he is murdered on an island, you know, a mosquito-infested island that's Manus Island, and I get to sit in the Australian Senate and make kebab jokes? Right? No, seriously, what is the difference? We're born five hours apart from each other. This is any difference. 25 years, and that we came by plane and he came by boat. That's really it. And you ask yourself... Well, what does that all that kind of kind of mean, and and what are the, what is the kind of consequences of all that? Because, you know, the Australian story, especially when it comes to refugees and things, has been fantastic. But what you've got now, at, at a very simple level, it's as if there's only two arguments that seem to be presented, and I reject both of them. One argument says this: you can have a completely open door policy. Anyone who wants to come, come, and if people die at sea in the last part of the journey, then so be it, because they would have died elsewhere, and we're still, you know, which no one really advocates. It's a straw man argument, but it's the one that's presented a lot of times, right? But that's a that's a false argument. But the other argument is this: that we have to take one group of people, and we have to treat them so inhumanely, so horribly, deny their human rights to such an extent that it will act as a deterrent for anyone else ever wanting to come here. And by doing so, we are in fact saving lives. That's actually the argument. That's mm. the, that is the policy position, right? And as if you can't have a third option, as if you can't have an efficient, humane refugee processing system that is not about being punitive, that's actually about processing people. Because here's, here are the basic facts. About 90% of people that come by boat um, are deemed genuine refugees, 50% that come by plane are. And these aren't simple tests. Like the the UN bar is not low. It's not as if anyone who wants to come come. Like you have to prove genuine fear. And um, uh, look, I I do. Uh, you know, we'll see where all this stuff ends up going. But just on on that topic of of manners, there was this one moment that I kind of think back on. It always freaks me out. So I get this phone call from Kevin Rudd, right? And I was one of the handful of people that were really close to Kevin. Right? We're really close to Kevin and stayed close to Kevin. Like no one was. Everyone stopped being close to Kevin, right? And I kind of all throughout was close to Kevin when he stopped being PM and then when he became PM again. And he gives me his phone call and he goes, oh, I'm doing a stand-up with O'Neill in PNG and we're going to fix the refugee problem. And at the time, I, these are very, it's a very political speak. Stand-up means press conference where you're standing beside someone. O'Neill, who was referring to the Prime Minister of Papua New Guinea, I didn't even know the Prime Minister of Papua New Guinea's name was O'Neill at the time. Mm-hmm. I, don't know. I didn't even know this, right? But, you know, kind of quickly got it up. And fix is a very political term. Oh, I don't like it already. Yeah? Fix is a political term that means I'm going to make this problem go away. And we had this chat, and it was about a three-minute chat, and I was completely on board. I'm like, great, that sounds fantastic. This is great, blah, blah, blah. You know, broadly said, oh, we're going to do a refugee resettlement program with PNG, and, you know, we'll process them there. And all sounded, to be honest, pretty good. Uh, in, in hindsight, um, I think that the more questions should have been asked. But And then I listened to the phone conversation that, or the transcript that Trump had with Malcolm mm. uh, about um, – it was about a month ago. A month ago was released, you know, mm. uh, under, you know, obviously the White House seems to leak like a sieve. And they released the transcript. And he didn't use the same words, but he made the same point. There you had Malcolm on the phone to President Trump effectively saying, look, I have a political problem with these people stuck on this island and I need you to help me deal with it politically. Do what you want. You can do extreme vetting. You can do whatever you want. I need you to fix. And he didn't use the word fix, but both of them, I realized, were looking at – Neither of them said we have a humanitarian crisis mm. that needs to be addressed. Both of them said we have a political problem that needs to be fixed. Mm. And you look back on these things and you go, okay, there's these parallels. And again, don't get me wrong. I mean, 
uh, a phone conversation between Donald Trump and Malcolm Turnbull is way more important than some conversation between Kevin and I. But just the parallels in how people view things and you realize, well, yeah, of course, this is the solution if you're looking at it as a political problem, not as a humanitarian one. Yeah. Sorry, I, that just became a rant. No, no, look, but that's, but that's okay. You know, when I, when, and it, it, it happened, you know, it started in the 90s. Yeah. It started just after you came, actually, yep. uh, under the same government that yep. brought you in. Yeah, yeah. And, you know, I wouldn't want to be faced with how to solve an issue of thousands of people coming by boat and, and, and what to do. Um, I would never want to be put in a situation where I need to try and deal with that yep. uh, issue of people coming by boat uh, to this country. Um, but I, I can't say that the solution that we've found and that as an Australian voter and a taxpayer that I am kind of them. <laughs> yes, this is where we're different. I, I can't right? say Maybe I'm this is why you it. do what you do, what you do. I could imagine nothing better than having to tackle that problem. A lot can happen in the next three years. Like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans are available for these changing times. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer budget-friendly, flexible coverage for people who are in between jobs or missed open enrollment. The plans last nearly three years in some states, with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. So for whatever tomorrow brings, United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans may be for you. Learn more at UH1.com. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do. It. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. I would love to be Australia's immigration minister. Well, I, I don't, I I don't consider myself. I don't consider myself uh, in, uh, empowered enough, or I, I feel that I would make really horrible mistakes. I would just want, you know, as much as I could to try and show that, you know, what was different when in the fifties or the late forties when my mum's family came here. Bear in mind they were from Lithuania; they were quite white. Yep. And um, my mum and my grandmother and grandfather were uh, doctors, so educated. Yep. They still came on boat. Yep. All they spoke was German. They were essentially the enemy because yes. all they spoke was German five years, you know, before that living in Germany. And yet they brought so much to this country. And my grandfather worked as a, you know, it's a classic immigrant story. You know, it was a lieutenant in the cavalry. He was the head obstetrician at the hospital. His degree wasn't recognized. Drove a bus in yeah. Adelaide, you know, which is as far as you can get from Calvinists in Lithuania as you can get. You know, as far as you can get from being the, this respected doctor who brought, you know, 10 kids into the world every day, driving a bus around Adelaide. But, you know, it contributed to this country. Yeah, well, that, yeah and these Adelaide communities, there's this, in the Adelaide Hills, there are these German families. I don't know if your family was kind of tied in with them. Who, they, well, they end up changing their names, um, um, a lot of them, uh, when they came. But there were streets there with kind of German names yeah. and this and that. There was a huge German community and they were the prize. That's where all the wine came from. Yeah, they were all the, but they were the prize. Yeah, um, but what changed? You know, what, what changed over you know our attitude towards immigrants post World War Two? Where look how much we can enrich our. Or we suddenly discovered our country only had four million people in yeah. it. We felt very empty and un, unmanned. Yeah. How can we enrich our country with these immigrants? To we have to protect our country from these immigrants. You yeah. know, something something changed along the way, and I would I would hope that part of the solution that someone like yourself would would come across would be to try and enrol people in this idea of. You know, these people aren't here to come and take money from us. They're here to bring value to our community. Yeah. Uh, but part of what we did wrong, okay, 
this is where I think we, we, we stuff this up and, and, and I blame uh, the center left of politics. I think did this really bad. We became so confident of the self-evidency of how right we are. Right. So it became so, you know, the, the, the strengths of multiculturalism and immigration are so self-evidently true that we actually stopped making the case. We stopped arguing for it and we stopped explaining it. And, and we also failed to recognize that, yeah, there are consequences that come with some of this. And you've got to talk to people in communities. You've got to bring people on board. And, and that's what allowed that, you know, there was such an arrogance. And again, the left of politics is probably more responsible for this. I think moderates in the right are equally responsible, but the left of politics should take ownership of this. We, we failed. We actually failed. And, you know, you talk about, you know, your parents and the migrant story. That migrant story is such a powerful one, and it's such a common one, mm. right? You know, you talk to any Uber driver, bus driver, whoever, right? Actually, next time you jump in an Uber, you talk to the driver, right? Probably, probably from the subcontinent mm. right, at the moment. Probably came over here, is studying or something. Uh, they're driving the equivalent of a cab now is obviously an Uber. I mean, some of them still drive cabs, um, uh, you know, because it's, it's an entry-level job. doesn't pay well, but it's an entry-level job. You can always get work. And they're doing that so that their kids can have opportunity. Mm. Right? And it's this kind of amazing Australian story about the parents sacrificing for the kid. Um, but I don't know, the bit that I find always hard is, and I'd like to think so, but you always look at those migrant parents, and you've got migrant parents too, and the sacrifice that they made for their kids. And you always ask yourself, have I been as good as they've been? Mm. Because I tell you, the thing about politics is it's such a selfish profession. <laughs> right? Such an incredibly selfish profession. So this is the bit that bothers me about all that. I look at my parents and I go, okay, they were engineers in Iran, revolution happens, my mother was slated for execution, go hiding in my parents' small town in northern Iran. That's when they decide they're going to have me. And that's when they decide they're going to come to Australia. My father always says this thing to me, by the way, which I always find obscure. He always says to me that I have a very Western view of death. And I go, what do you mean? He goes, oh, you have a very Western view of death. You always think death has a purpose. In places like Iran when the terror came, uh, death has no purpose. Death is just there. So parents leave Iran, come to Australia. And they sacrifice everything. You know, my dad drove a taxi. And they ended up getting into small business. They were quite, you know, very happy. But, you know, they kind of gave up their own dreams, own ideals for their own children so that I could do what I do. You know, and I've had a very lucky political run. I got elected to the Senate at 30, you know, all those things. And then I go to myself, okay, look at my kids, right? And when you're in politics, you're incredibly selfish business because then you're asking your kids to effectively give, give you up because I'm only there half the year, right? I only live in Sydney half the year. The other half the year I'm living in Canberra. And then you've got the public kind of nature of it all. Uh, and then, you know, I, last year I got caught up in a scandal, so you see all that kind of stuff. You see family, all that, right? And, again, you and the media is, I mean, similar in a different way, right? I mean, you you say something wrong at a bar and it's going to be on front page of every paper, right? You get drunk and, you know, you know, all swear. that stuff happened before Facebook. Thank yeah. You. Well, <laughs> but no, but now, but now, you know, I don't what drink I mean? anymore. But, sorry, but you're, you know, you're, you're, you're a celebrity, right? Um, and, and all of that kind of, we're not celebrities. We're, we're, we're punching bags, but, and you go, yourself, okay, so your family has to give all that up. Yeah. And then you ask yourself, okay, have I asked two generations, both my parents and my kids to sacrifice for me to be able to do this? And would I make the same sacrifice my parents made? I like to think I would, mm. but I haven't. Right. But I haven't. And I always say to myself this, right? When my little girls grow up, and I've got two girls, they're six and four, are they going to say, 
oh, daddy was amazing. Daddy, you know, really cared about the issues he cared about, you know, politics, multiculturalism, all these kinds of things. And so he fought for what he believed. Or, or are they going to say, oh, yeah, dad, yeah, he was never there. Right. And I'd like to think it's going to be the former, but uh, history shows it's probably the latter. And, you know, that's part of being this, maybe it's migrant guilt, right? Part of it is that you do, you have parents who've sacrificed so much. And, uh, again, it's, you know, politics is a very, very selfish business. Is it the same with you? Is, is kind of, is media the same? Um well, you know, you, it's, it's often said there is no I in team, but there is a me and an I in media. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I'm asking to get paid for people to listen and look at me. Yep. So there is an element of selfishness there. And also, I mean, like, okay, when you go, like, you know, your, your daughter's obviously a teenager now. Um, all her friends, all her friends' parents, you know, you go to parties, pick up this, that. You're like... It's not you are somebody, right? People want to know, like you know, you're a celebrity, right? So people are always trying I to get photos. I played pretty like, I played oh, really yeah, like. Yeah. No, no, no. It's yeah. not like it used to be. I used to, I used to wear it like a, like a badge. Don't ask me about work. Why aren't you asking me about work? Look at me. Don't look at me. Why aren't you <laughs> yeah. looking at me? Stop looking at me. Why aren't you looking? Like it was, I, I would court it, but I, I play it pretty, pretty low key these days. But yeah, I would say, well, I mean, you know, it's a genuinely selfish profession. I'm asking people to listen to me. I'm yep. asking people to and believe that what I have to say is important. And you know, here I am, 200 something podcasts in, going, oh no, 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 what I have to say yeah. is important, and the people that I choose to be on this show are, you know, worthy. But I think there's got to be an element of that in any business. You know, you've got to believe that what you have to offer is worth something, and just put it out there and if people start responding, either, you know, paying for it with their money or their time like they do with this podcast, giving me an hour or so of their week, um, then you go, oh, actually, I guess, you know, the, the value that I put on it um, is similar or less than yeah. or higher than, than their value. Let me ask you about, um, you mentioned your your parents and I, having lived in Los Angeles, I met mean, obviously yeah, a lot of Iranians. Iranians. Yeah, Tarantulas, they call yeah. So a lot of people may, you know, it's wild to think this now, but there are people of voting age that have no concept of Tehran being a thriving, bustling, westernized, modern yeah. capital. Um, what was your parents' story <laughs> yeah, okay. in so Tehran I'll, I'll in the, living okay. up to the revolution in the so 70s? In the late 70s, my parents were student lefties. Uh, and there were student organisers at the kind of uh, in the at, in the university political in the scene. grumblings of the revolution at the start. Yes, yeah. so it was around seventy. So the Islamic Revolution was in seventy nine. Now, what happened is uh, effectively um, they were kind of young lefty pro democracy student youth because the run at the time was under the Shah. Under the Shah. So it was a, a very, very yeah, different, monarchy. Yeah, uh, very pro US, um, but very. R- r- you know, repressive. Did do some. Did do not do good things to people that no, disagreed with them. No, no. But it was a. Um, it was you know. It was effectively you had a dictatorship that got replaced by theocracy. Um, but uh, you know, they was. This is height of the Cold War. You got to understand. Iran then was sharing a border with the USSR, a country now called Azerbaijan. But at the time, the USSR used to come right to the Iranian border. It was seen as one of the walls against. You know, the kind of Soviet, uh, and this is 79, in the 70s, this is very, very much in the height of the kind of Cold War. And it was a very, very repressive um, regime under the Shah. It was, in terms of issues like women's freedom and that, was was very quite progressive. But on issues just on political freedom and that, there was just no dissent allowed, you know. So when the revolution happens in 79, there was a whole bunch of different parties involved. And one of the big parties was the student youth. 
Now, the Islamists seized control at the time of the revolution. Again, hard to make historical comparisons. Probably the best one you could make would be Egypt, mm-hmm. when there was kind of a popular uprising of people rejecting it, and then the Islamists initially took over um, under the Muslim Brotherhood there. And uh, there's some misconceptions there. So two, two points, I think, that are of significance. Firstly, there is a myth that the Islamists weren't popular. That's a lie. They were incredibly popular incredibly popular. You know, Alatoya Khomeini, who became the first Islamic ruler of Iran, he'd flown in from Paris, he was in hiding in Paris, incredibly popular figure. And secondly, the um, theocracy uh, and the um, Islamists had the best power structure in place because at the mosques. And the Shah, for all his many, many faults, wasn't dumb enough to have really ripped apart the mosque structure. He would have fallen earlier if he tried to. You know, this is a tenant of, you know, Iran is a it very, very religious country. It didn't strike him that thousands of people gathering every Friday well, listening. It's a very religious country, right? Yeah. So if he had tried to do that, he probably wouldn't have lasted. Right, you know? yeah. And he used to kind of pay lip service to, to Islam. Mm. Uh, I, I, how religious he was himself I think is questionable, but he used to pay lip service to mm-hmm. Islam, as you had to if you were a ruler of a, of a religious country like Iran. So the Islamists seize control. And once the Islamists seize control, they say to themselves, okay, who are the threats? And the threats were the young student pro-democracy left. And then also there was a much more kind of older communist kind of group. They effectively turned around to the USSR and said, look, all your old comm mates that happen to be in Iran, we're creating a theocracy here, but we're anti-American, you're anti-American, we'll leave you alone, you leave us alone, and we can trade together. So the Russians, or the USSR at the time, saw the Islamic regime not really as a problem, was better than the Shah. Mm. Sure, they didn't really like religion, they didn't really like Islam and that, but it didn't really matter. They could trade with them, and they were anti-American, and they mm. were causing Jimmy Carter and these people all these problems with hostages and all this yeah. kind of stuff. So they, they, they kind of effectively had a relationship, and all the old kind of lefties were left alone. But then they went through and started liquidating the student youth. Right? Did, just before that, just to rewind a second, did... Because from what I, I might have got this wrong, but from what I understand, that there was a bunch of people involved in the revolution, yep. and the students were a part yes. of organising yes. people to yes. push towards yes. it. And then, somewhere along the way, either a few weeks or months later, then the Islamists yes. went, "Ha ha! Yeah, we've got control. We've got you now. We don't need you anymore. Yes. In fact, you are yep. now yes." And they you know, became, and what the stuff about women's rights and stuff. Yep. No, no, no. Yeah, yeah. and they yeah. became. If you ask my parents at the time, they would have said they had this vision of Iran, and again. Uh, we look at this from a very, very Western perspective. Their understanding of democracy was probably a bit more, um, uh, um, uh, bit more naive than perhaps you mm. know, those of us who live in the, in the West can see. But they had an idea of yeah, there'll be elections, there'll be pro-democracy, and there'll be mm. kind of centre-left. From governments. what I gather, though, that the the Islamists were like, oh no, no, that's all going to happen. They, oh yeah, they, they, yeah, there was they was, said whatever they needed to do. Who told me that there was cassettes? There were, there was cassettes but, but, of but lectures but being passed around. Thing, like, let's not kid ourselves here. And this is the worrying thing, right? If you had have had a fully democratic election in Iran, the Islamists probably would have won anyway. Right. I mean, they were, they were popular, right? Yeah. And, and they ran charity. And Okay. The former president of Iran, this guy Ahmadinejad, <laughs> used to go around and say crazy things like, I'm going to wipe Israel off the map, and the West would go crazy. Yeah. Right? Now, the reason he was popular in Iran, in, because when he was mayor of Tehran, he made bread free. Right, like there is, they're populist. They were very the the mosque yeah. structure and the and the imams and that are actually very very politically populist. They always yeah. have been. And sometimes we in the West get caught up on. And don't get me wrong, that is a horrible thing to say and it's atrocious and we should be outraged. But his appeal in Iran wasn't because he said outraged things. I think some elements of the domestic audience like that. Don't get me wrong, but it was you know basic populism. You know, mm. people Chavez in you know Venezuela's popularity was because he redistributed wealth, not because he, you know he'd say things that were outraged. He did that as well. That was in addition. But the revolution happens, and my parents' friends all start getting 
a post-revolution, they still, you know, kind of student organizers and they all start getting executed. Well, now what, how did this, were they so, being dragged out of houses? Were they just disappearing? Were they, they were, not showing up? They were getting arrested in their cars. They were finding, you know, again, in, in, again, this is going back to that line earlier about how, um, the death is quite random. Hmm. So my mother always talks about this day. She talks about the, um, uh, she talks about the 21st of, um, uh, September 1981, which was two years before I was born. And that was the day my mother was arrested and my, my sister was with her. They took her to one of the Revolutionary Guard outposts. So her young daughter. Yeah, my, yeah, who's my sister, who's four years older than me, so she was two at the time. She gets arrested with her. They're handing out flyers or pamphlets somewhere. They get dragged into one of the Revolutionary Guard outposts. And the same day, in a separate place across town, two of my father's best friends get arrested as well. They both get executed that day. And my mother doesn't. And my mother always says that that was the day she decided she was going to have me. And that was the day they decided they're going to move to the small town in northern Iran, which is where I was born. And that was the day they decided they were going to leave Iran. And it took them years after that before they could finally get out. In a strange way, probably the reason why my parents were alive is the outbreak of the Iran-Iraq war. Uh, and again, now it's becoming a history lesson on Iran. No, no, but, that's all right. Um, There's a lot of people who might not know. Um, but what ended up happening was after the Islamists took over, um, they there was an Iran and Iraq going to debate about who was responsible for what, but they went to war against each other uh, over border disputes between Iran and Iraq. I think Iraq, Saddam saw it as an opportunity to try and seize the oil fields, um, and they thought they'd get more U.S. support than they perhaps did. Uh, Iran saw it as an existential threat, so there was an eight-year war that went on there. And what happened was the focus of the regime suddenly shifted from internal dissent to the actual existential threat of Saddam's mm. army. And this is why the Iranian regime and the Saddam's regime have always were always at odds. How'd your mum get out? Well, we came out of family. We came. No, in no, no. How did she get out of the guardhouse? How did she okay, get released? So they kept her. Guys like that. No, they kept her for two days. They kept my sister there, and my mother tells this story about how my sister. They told my sister. They got my sister was you know only a couple years old at the time to kind of sit there and tell them if my mum looked up, and my sister did that right because kids do that. And they were very good to the kids, right? And they were very nice to my sister, as my, my mother tells me. Because, uh, again, they were the future of the revolution and they were thinking it's not their fault their parents were, you know, this is how they viewed the world, right? These are good Islamic kids. These are the future. Mm. It's not their fault. They've got these asshole parents who are, you know, dirty comms. Um, and they ended up, um, so after about two days, uh, they released my mother. My mother comes out to find out that my father's friends had been executed. My father was on the assumption my mother had been executed. And didn't know where my sister was. And they were trying to go around. And again, the systems had all broken down at that mm. point, right? Like, it's not as if, you know, it's not, you don't call up a hotline or this and that. You try and find people. You don't know where they you are. People someone. go missing. No, you can't. You can't. And do I'm sure that. if you start asking around, people are going to find out you've been asking around. So you've got to be careful <laughs> how you find out. Um, yeah. And, uh, and that's, that, that was it for them. That was obviously the, the final straw. But what's interesting is I had these kind of fairly left wing kind of parents and, um, far more left wing than me. I mean, they're in the Labour Party now, but, I mean, they oh, they probably vote, you know, if it wasn't for me, they'd probably be voting Socialist Alliance. Um, but I mean, my final year of school, my parents kind of got this stage where they go, okay, we've done enough, you know, I was doing my HSC, but my final year, they left. They left me with a house, uh, a car, um, and our family home, which is in the Hills area of Sydney, or was our family home then, and moved to Cuba. <laughs> in, you know, in pursuit, as we used to joke, of the true form of socialism, uh, they moved to Cuba. And it was almost like this whole kind of, it's very migrant thing. They kind of feel like, okay, we've had to live this other life for our kid up until now to get him to this point. He's finishing school. 
um, we can go be, you know, ourselves again. So, you know, up until that point, they, my dad had driven a taxi at the start. Then they got involved in small business. Mm. Um, uh, they had a cake shop in Castle Hill at the shopping center. Uh, and then they had one at Blacktown as well. Uh, you know, they were very, very happy already. But again, all sacrifice. They gave up their own politics, their mm. own dreams, their own life, uh, to be able to, you know, uh, raise my sister and I. And they got this stage right at the end where they go, that's it. We're out of here. And since then, they've kind of, I mean, around a bit now, but they just travel. Right. It's pretty much backpack around the world. And they're way cooler than I am. My, my dad comes back after yeah. my hatred from Cuba with boxes of cigars, which is obviously smuggled in, right? And he's like handing them out to my friends and that. You know, like I look back now and say how weird this is, right? Because I was 17. I mean, your daughter's 16? 13. 13. 13, okay. She's very uh, tall. Okay. Can you imagine just leaving her with a house and a car and this and that? Like, it was just a party house. Everyone was right, over no all weekend. And no, no issues. Right? Do you blame your – I mean, my folks, my grandparents were doctors. My mum was a doctor. Mm. My dad's a doctor. Four, I'm one of four boys and none of us doctors. Yeah. Do your, do your parents' lives have any role in what you became? Yeah, of course. I mean, everyone's shaped by their experiences, right? Everyone who tries to pretend that they're not a product of their environment is kidding themselves. Uh, my sister's a refugee lawyer. Um, uh, down at Monash. She's brilliant. She's incredibly smart. She briefed the Obama White House on um, Guantanamo Bay. She's a Fulbright scholar. She's just an incredibly, incredibly smart person. Um, and, and myself in politics, um, all of it is shaped by your experience. It is. Mm. Anyone, you know, people kind of, uh, people try and pretend this thing, Osha, that they're somehow these clean slates, which is bullshit. Mm. We're all a product of the environment that we were raised in. Mm. And as much as, you know, people like to think that they're all on their own, they're individual, this and that, if you're not shaped by your experiences, what are you shaped by? Yeah. When you um, – we, we talked earlier about, you know, you know in your job, like yeah. my, my – say if I've got a problem at work, my problem will be uh, there's – it's the first night of Batch, there's – 22 guys' names to remember. Yep. Shit. Yeah. Okay. That's about the extent of my problems uh, at the moment. Um, your problem might be I'm on camera at all times. I'm a public punching bag because I'm you yeah, know, a public servant. Yeah, of course. So of people course, feel they have be, the right yeah. to take, you know, the shit out of me because, you know, I, I, I'm getting critiqued all day no matter what I say, do, look, blink, whatever. Um, when you get those really difficult days at yep. work, how do you oh, it's deal with that. it? Two things. Firstly, I mean, you, you're being very humble, but uh, the stress that you must have, I mean, not doing 22 names, you, there must have been times where you go, okay, I'm on Ooh. this show, the show might get canned, what happens to my career, am I finished, am, mortgage. I, yeah, and so, am no, I a failure? No, 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 all, you know, all that, that is a part okay. of it. No, but all but that is a part of it. The, but... the bit that I realized how bad it was with this, so I get caught up in a donation scandal just over a year ago now. And there is all these cameras parked at the front of my house. It's like, And by the way, the way scandals now work, right? is what's so incredible is the pace. Mm. So what used to be a five-week thing is now condensed into four days, mm. which is both good and bad. It's good in that it's over very, very quickly. Um, it's bad in that that intensity. So what used to be a daily story that kind of goes on for a while is all condensed by morning to 11 a.m. to 1 p.m. to 3 p.m. to 6 p.m. news is five different stories, variations, is that. So I've got all these cameras parked at the front of our house. And my, I've got this next-door neighbor who's a top bloke, and he's a really good mate of mine. And he hadn't left his house for about eight years at that point, right? Um, and he's like my only friend outside of politics, which says a lot about me, probably says a lot about me. And um, all of a sudden, all the cameras go. They've just disappeared. And he calls me, he goes, mate, I got rid of the cameras. You can get out now. You can go. And I go, mate, what did you do? He goes, oh, I called the cops and I said to them, there's pedophiles taking photos of the senator's children at the street. And the cops came and shoot the cameras away. So I do this runner out of my house. And as I jump into my car and drive off, I think to myself, 
this is not going to end well for me. <laughs> if my only way of getting out of the house is my next door neighbor accusing cameraman of being pedophiles, taking wow. photos of children, it's not going to end well. And you're right. It is this, you know, um, I mean, there's that part of it, right? And, and, and that's the, the, the life you choose to live. Um, and you know, the, again, this sounds like a bit of a blase thing, but it is true. Your family don't decide these things. Your family don't choose these things. You know, your family get dragged into it. And again, you know, my daughters are too young to kind of understand all of it now. Um, but yeah, it's a very, very, in the world of social media, uh, the world of Facebook, Twitter, and this and that, you know, hit polys and that try and kind of fight it and avoid it. And you can't, you can't, this is the reality we now live in. Mm. You're in a fishbowl now. And, um, I always have this theory, Asha, that there is something a little bit unhinged about all of us in politics because this isn't normal. I actually extend it to the media. So here's why it's not normal. What is it about us that needs that sense of public adulation, that needs that sense of public acceptance Mm -hmm. to feel like we're belonging and doing good? Why isn't it good enough for me to run, you know, um, Medicines Frontier or want to run AusAid or want to run, you know, Oxfam to be able to do good, right? Why do I need it to be so public? Hmm. And I, I have this theory, the thing about Parliament House and politics, you are dealing with the most incredibly extroverted people in many states, right? Because, you know, you naturally have to be a bit of, there are some introverts in politics, it's very rare. You just have to be an extrovert. Uh, it's just the nature of the business. Who are so incredibly lonely, who are so incredibly sad, and there is a sadness in politics because there is the inevitability that your career is going to end in failure. And there's a great unit power quote about it that all political careers end in failure, if not cut off at an inappropriate juncture. And and why is that? Because just take our prime ministers. Let's say your holy grail is to be the most powerful political person in the country. Not everyone's ambition is that, but Mm -hmm. let's just say that's the ultimate, you know, success. Mm -hmm. Head of BHP. Head of (laughs) (laughs) BHP. Even Howard, even Howard had the humiliation of losing his own seat after that long period. Hawke got knocked off by his own party. Um, Keating um, had a humiliation. In his mind, it took him years. I don't know if he's even ever over it, a loss to, to Howard, you know. Kevin was removed, Julia was removed, Abbott was removed. You know, look, the history hasn't been written yet about Turnbull. I suspect the history books are going to treat Malcolm as saying all this potential did nothing with it. That's my opinion. Again, your listeners might, from a different political persuasion, entitled yeah. their own views. No one really since Menzies, right? Even Fraser. Fraser was a broken man after Hawke smashed him. Because so many of them in politics, like take, take Kevin, who I knew really well. Kevin had this theory, belief. He never said it, but this is what Kevin believed. At first, if only I become Labour leader, then I finally made it and everything will be okay. Becomes Labour leader. If only if I'm Prime Minister, it'll be okay. Becomes Prime Minister. If only I win one more election, Prime Minister should get taken off him. If only I get the Prime Ministership back, gets it back. If only I win the election now that I've got the Prime Ministership back, everything will be okay. And it's this search for belonging and acceptance. Like, I honestly believe Malcolm spent his life, when I'm Prime Minister, it will all be okay. As long as I can become prime minister and achieve this objective, I've made it. But and if you, whether you've got political ambitions or not, I think everybody has a sense of that. Well, once I get the new iPhone, everything yep. will be fine. Once, oh, this car sucks. Once I get the new car, everything will be fine. Once I move house, everything will be fine. Once Game of Thrones is back on, everything yeah. will be fine. If but my unless, team win the NRL grand final. Yeah. yeah, yeah. But unless you are okay with exactly how things are right now, nothing is ever going to be fine. Yep, and politics is a big, 
business full of people who are not okay. Right? I always say Parliament House in Canberra is almost like a it's like a musical. Right? Mm. It's like a it's like a high school musical. You've got your actors on the stage, you've got the understudies, you've got the chorus crowd, you've got the agents. Right? Right? It's like this whole kind of musical kind mm. of like production, and everyone's waiting for someone to slip so that they can say, "Oh, I could have done that better." Right? right? You know? Everyone's that kind of like those snide comments that get made, you know, in the corridor about each other, uh, about you know, oh, well, I would have done that better, and I would have done this, and I would have done that. Um, uh, that is the kind of world, kind of that's the political yeah. world that, that we're in, and. You're right. It's it's everywhere. I think it's worse in politics. And there is a, I have to say, there is a sadness to it. If you go to Parliament House, and it's this giant building, which has been built really, 4,000 people work there, but it's really to make 227 people feel important. Right? <laughs> no, really, that's what it's built for. Mm. It is built to make everyone there, you know, you don't need passes, everyone knows your name, everyone has to know your name, you're this, you're that. It's all built for this infrastructure. Mm. And you do live in a bubble. There's no doubt about it. It's an incredible bubble. And... There is this kind of sadness of ambition and dreams because what you're talking about, which I think is everywhere, is even more professed in, in politics. You know, I honestly think in Tony Abbott's mind, if he gets the Prime Ministership again, it'll be okay. Oh, man. You know, but, but it will, right? You know, it'll be okay. It's not going to be okay, No, it's Tony. not. But, but this is the thing. And, and you talk about people accepting it. Won't it be okay for like, him? No, but, but this kind of, you know, this acceptance and being okay and being happy with life is, is not what drives people, in, unfortunately, into, into politics. It doesn't mean that people can't do good or don't try and do good, but it's a very, very sad place. Yeah. But it's turned into a pretty depressing kind of... No, no, no. Right. <laughs> I have two things I want to ask you. I'd be interested to know your thoughts on this. I've been thinking a lot about, particularly after the last, especially after this ridiculous postal ballot, um, a plebiscite, um, we have a political system in Australia designed 120 yep. years ago yep. for a time when horseback was the fastest or carrier pigeon was the fastest way you could get a message from place to place. Distances were unfathomable. You would live your entire life without seeing uh, 100 kilometres from where you lived. And, you know, we really we were a very monocultural society at the time. Yep. Um, a homogenous, sorry, uh, cultural society at the time. If you were to make a, a shift in the system of our political, uh, the way our political democracy works, what do you think? Okay, do you think we'd a couple do? of things I do. Firstly, I'd lower the voting age to sixteen, which is very. very it's not a Labor Party position, by the way. It's my position. I've had that for years. I think um, you start getting people at school age involved in voting, and I think that's a good thing. You make it part of the education system, uh, more so into grade in grade. So at the moment now, a couple of kids when they're eighteen are able to vote. But at sixteen, with state, local government, and federal elections, you'll be voting before you finish school. So you can integrate that into part of the school kind of curriculum a lot more. That's so political education. Yeah, political education gets lifted. And literacy, political literacy yep. increases. Um, yeah. So I'd start voting at 16. Uh, one proposal I've seen that I actually probably like is the one that from 16 to 18, it's voluntary voting, you can vote, and at 18, it's compulsory. Uh, secondly, I think you have to start looking at some of the other forms of voting and electronic voting and that as well. And by the way, anyone who talks about, I mean... You can do your entire banking. I can right now get on my phone and organize a home loan for three or four, you know, hundred thousand dollars or a million and a half if I'm in Sydney or two million if I'm in Sydney or wherever, right? I can do all that on, on with security on my phone. I can do net banking this, that. The idea that you can't have secure voting, you know, um, or there aren't secure systems to have voting. Cause I've been seeing, you know, a few interesting ideas about, you know, ways that you could change how Voting works and how representative how representative democracy could change. Like for example, um, you know there was one system where for every thousand people there's one 
person and, yep. and then there's you know yep. there's a thousand of those who report to one and so it's 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 true you know yep. so you don't get this gerrymandering stuff and and, th- and things like that yeah so. look i mean the reality is this the system now has huge problems right? and the other big problem is it's slow mm. it's an incredibly slow process so you're living in this kind of digital age where people are able to make fast decisions and people want to make fast decisions one of the big problems we have you have a system that was designed over 100 years ago. Mm-hmm. There are so many problems with the system, and the biggest problem is that it's incredibly slow. Mm. Like Decision-making is not fast. And, you know, it, you have the, the reality of how people participate in politics and the political process are completely and utterly kind of different from each other. Uh, and so this is what we have with young people who want to get involved in politics. Right? There's a mistake everyone makes. They said, oh, young people don't give a shit about politics. That's not true. Young people love politics. They're interested in politics. What they don't care about is organised party politics. I understand this because I grew up, I mean, I grew up in Queensland at a Bjelke Peterson and all I saw was like old white men lining each other's pockets. And I'm like, I have nothing in common with them, nor do I want to be anything like them. Why would I ever want to choose a life that deals with these people every day? And yeah, of course. And you are, and this is the, um, and so, but how do you make it more participatory? How do you make it faster? How do you use things like the internet and social media and that? I mean, take this postal vote survey ridiculous thing that we've got at the moment. Hmm. If anything, it shows young people actually care. There's this whole bullshit myth that young people aren't going to vote and they're not going to want to participate in this thing. They all want to participate. They are participating. Why are they participating? Because they actually care about the issue. Now, if I try and say to them, join a political party, they're going to say, no way, because why would you join a political party, you know, that is based around meeting in halls at 8 p.m. at night, you know, when people's actual participation in politics, let's face it, is on Twitter, on Facebook, mm. on Instagram, on, you know, Snapchat. That's how people kind of participate in their politics at the moment. I mean, Osha, if you go down now and ask people just down in the street how they consume their media, they don't know. But all of them have consumed it somehow. Mm. They're all on top of what's happening. They're all on top of the issues. How do they consume it? Through bits and pieces. You know, through a little bit here, a little bit there. And at the end of the day, they're actually really, really well informed. But there's no gone are the days where it's about the 30 second news story at 6 p.m. news when Laurie Oaks gives it to you. Politics now is so much more decentralized than that, but our political system isn't. Do you think we'll see that change? Uh, I think. Or what do you think will bring it about? I, I think it, I think it will reform. I think it will open up. Again, as I said to you, some of the really early stuff to do, the simple stuff should be, um, lowering the voting age and some kind of online voting. Yeah. Right? Identification is now done online, right? Like the security stuff isn't what it used to be. Again, if I can do banking and this and that, then surely I can do uh, a little bit of voting. Once we move down that path, and again, once we move to the blockchain and a few other places, um, I think those things will be a lot oh, more. Oh, you said accepted. the magic word to me. Well, blockchain. Oh, yeah. Really? <laughs> yeah. Are you into blockchain? Oh, yeah, I am. I am the head of the parliamentary friends of blockchain. I'm fascinated so much by this. That'll be the next podcast okay. we do. Okay, because we've got I've got one more question I want to ask you, yeah. now, but I'm, I'm, I'm dead set serious. Yeah, we, yeah. Should, we should talk about uh, particularly blockchain technology with using with voting. Yeah, because it's all about uh, identification. It's I, I identify it be, who people are. Yeah, I, I hope some extraordinarily forward thinking, some extraordinarily forward thinking um, Northern European small enough country yeah. does a blockchain election sooner than later. And just all right, that's it. So this is first first on the Osha's podcast. We're doing blockchain elections. Uh, it's a publicly available ledger. Anyway. We'll yeah, I know, I know. I know. Uh, it's, Mate, um, it's brilliant. Um, Ethereum or... Never. No, no. Forget about Ethereum. <laughs> Pardon? I forget about Bitcoin and Ethereum. It's the technology okay, that matters. Okay. Uh, you, more than anyone in the current political uh, world, have to deal with people who are vehemently imposed not only to your political status, yep. but you as a human. Yep. 
every day. Yeah, yeah, of course. All right, you go to work and you sit across from yeah. people. Pauline Hanson. Pauline Hanson. Pauline Hanson wore a fucking burqa into the Australian Senate and everyone was okay with that. I was fucking not. <laughs> okay. <laughs> a lot of people were okay with that. And it's scary. That is scary shit. It is really, really scary stuff. How, how, do, you, how do you deal with going to work every day? Um, how do you remember, how do you not, I guess I'm asking for people who, you know, don't live in the Australian Senate, but still have someone at work who is, just triggers them so yeah, hard, okay. right? Okay. They go, okay, I've got to remember, don't personally react. How can I just do my job? Okay. Firstly, one thing I'm sure of is that I trigger her uh, as much, if not more than she triggers me, which, which helps. Uh, and secondly, she is a, I mean, look, I mean, She's a fascist as far as I'm concerned, which makes it fairly easy, in my opinion, to kind of de- deal with. I mean, she's not even a good fascist. Like, I wouldn't let her run the trains. Right? <laughs> um, but she's not a Nazi. A lot of people on the internet and them try and portray Pauline Hanson and them as Nazis. They're not Nazis. They're a whole other thing altogether. But, but they are, you know, these are kind of fascist policies and agendas. Trying to make it not personal is incredibly difficult when they hate everything you stand for, hate everything you are, and you have such fundamentally different views of where the country should be. Honestly, how I deal with it, I deal with it with humor. I, I laugh at it, you know, I try and kind of make jokes, I try and be playful about it. Uh, I, that's how I deal with all the hate, the online hate, the social media hate, the, the people out there who will abuse you uh, because of your politics and your ideas. For me, the defense mechanism is actually trying to kind of laugh about it, joke about it. I mean, Osha, you were saying the same thing yourself, you know, the way you deal with trolls online. A lot of it is we joke about it and you said, oh, you know, we push them back to they're all defense mechanisms for ourselves, aren't they? At the end of the day, we're protecting ourselves from them. Mm. And with Hanson and these people in the Australian Senate, uh, that, that is the only way to deal with it. But we're, we're heading into a very, very ugly place. Do you, have, do, you have any, do you have any compassion for her? No, because I think there is an evil at the heart of her, and, and this is why. You don't think she's just a, uh, someone no. who's afraid that her no, world changed around her? I think she's a it? sensationally good politician. Yeah. I think she understands her dem- demography. I, I don't think she's incredibly intelligent on a lot of issues, but I think she's incredibly savvy. And we forget that Pauline Hanson's been around for over 20 years. Mm. 20 years ago, I was banging on about Asians, you know, we're being flooded by Asians, Asian migration. Now it's about Muslims, it's about mosques, it's about Islam. All of it, at the end of the day, is the same thing. And it's about saying the problem is the other. Yeah. And... And, and when you are that other, it's it's not nice. It's not it's no. not easy. But again, you know, you choose a public life, uh, and you choose to get involved in politics, and you just have to remind yourself that it comes with the territory. So it's the price we pay. So so for people who maybe don't have a job in the Senate and don't you know have Pauline Hanson you know absolutely mocking and you know yeah. deriding them every day of their life when they go to work, <laughs> but they still have someone at work. How okay. do you how do you get up and go to work every day? You have to make you, uh, you honestly you. Don't let them, I mean, it sounds like a bit naive, but you can't let them win. And getting that rise out of you, getting that win, that's their win. That's the game for them. That's the objective. And not letting that happen is, I think, a very, very important thing. And that's how I deal with it. Do you breathe? Do you keep yourself calm? Well, I mean, with, with Hanson's, uh, there, there were times when you when I've lost it. We had this one exchange once, and it was over some Facebook kind of thing recording, and she, I think, was expecting me to have a go at her about multiculturalism, which helps her, so I wasn't going to do that. And we had this go where I had a go at her about her support of Vladimir Putin. This is after she said some nice things about Putin. Honestly, I don't think she knew what she was doing. I think that in her mind that was what the Americans had, um, you know, Trump and others have done, so she kind of felt like she should do. And we had this exchange, and we're just kind of screaming at each other. And afterwards I did kind of sit back and I said to myself, I don't want to be full of – it's so easy in my business to be full of hate. 
I don't want to be full of that hate because I don't want to be that person. And this is the problem what people like that do to you. You become that person and they win. Don't become that person. Don't become that person. Don't, don't become full of hate. <laughs> it's very easy to become full of hate. You know, it's very easy to have the slights against you, the harm. You know, I get people, we all have friends, Osha, who, you know, have been through a divorce. That's the best example. Or, or you know, partner cheated on them. It's that horrible things have happened. And more often than not, they're in the right. And you say to them five years later, let it go. You know, like, you know, it's not worth it. And the same thing happens in politics. You have to let it go. You don't want to be that person sitting there like Tony Abbott, consumed by the hate or the anger. You don't want to be that person. Is it because it stops you in your track? Oh, it destroys who you are. It destroys your identity. It eats up at, at, at who, who you are. I mean, forget about the, just the raw kind of ambition. It's not smart politics. It doesn't play well. Putting all that aside, right, um, it changes who you are. And you now, hate, I always say this, hate is as powerful an emotion as love. And if I love someone, I'll get on a plane, I'll fly halfway around the country just to see them, to kiss them, to tell them how much they mean to me. And if I hate someone, I'll get on a plane, I'll fly halfway around the country just to fuck them over in a ballot. <laughs> like, it's the same emotion, right? It's just the opposite ends. And as much as, you know, you know how you feel when you're filled with love and this amazing sense of fulfillment, um, hate can do the exact opposite to you. And you have to stop yourself being consumed by hate. And you see this happen all the time in politics and public life and others. And, you know, Again, in the in life you live, I should, you must see this. People have missed out on a television gig or a show or something. They felt they probably they may have been in the right, they may have been wronged by it, mm. right? They may have been in the right and they didn't get this gig they wanted or whatever. And for years it consumes them, and then something in a horrible, horrible place. How long are you going to do this for? Um, well, okay, I don't have the paradox of choice. All right, so and what, I, what I mean is this: when I used to run the live party, I used to get these people would come and see me. And there were some incredible musicians that come up through the doors in different times. Garrett actually did it. Celebrities, actors, this, that, a couple of athletes, who I'm not going to name names, right? who came and said, I want to pursue a political career. And I'm like, I don't know, why the fuck would you do that for? Right? <laughs> Everybody loves you, right? Mm. Like why on earth would you want to come into politics where half the people hate you to begin with and this and that? But they always had other op- you know, things. For me, I, I honestly think I'm going to do this for a long time. Um, uh, but it's not, it is the best thing I can do. It's not like this, you know, you know, they're not going to give me my breakfast drive radio show in Sydney yet. (laughs) So this is my dream in life. I want to have like a breakfast radio show, Dasher in the mornings, getting you to work, like angry left wing radio, (laughs) angry left wing radio. You and me both, mate. But my, I think Mike Carton back in the day had something similar once upon a time, but he's the only one who's, who's kind of done it. Just angry left me later. Like, yeah. Why aren't the trains running on time? You that know? was my dream, man. When I first moved to LA, Mark Maron was on Air America. Oh, my God. Mark he's... Maron was doing angry left-wing talkback, and I'd never heard left-wing talkback, and I was like, <gasps> this is incredible. Okay. Was that before the podcast? Yeah. Yeah, his producer from Air America was the one that showed him what, and when Air America, when he got taken off air, yeah. his producer was like 20 or something. He said, there's this pod, thing called podcast. And they started doing a podcast as Air America's winding down. Jeez. They started using their studios to record the first versions well, of the podcast. You know, again, I mean, I listen to them now. I didn't listen to them at the start. You know, he's making $300,000 a week off the podcast. God bless his heart. Like, he had just, the president of the United just, States fly a helicopter to the soccer field across the road from his house to visit him in his garage. Jeez, just that. I mean, it, it is an amazing mm. podcast, um, the, the, the WTF. It is the, it is the, again, it's just this, I don't know. Yeah, I, I don't know what makes it so good. Um, it's not just the guests and that, because I've seen podcasts which have amazing guests and that. It's not that. And some of the people who gets it are a bit more obscure. It's just 
that intimacy, I think. Mm. It's the intimacy the podcast give you. Mm. Yeah. Mate, I'm really grateful you came Well, thank around. you. I've it's got good. my yeah, little daughter's kind of has just taken your dog for a walk. Yeah. Or, or, or your dog has taken my daughter for a walk. Playing I think. fetch with Frank. Yeah. Um, it's been super good to have you here, mate. Thank and, you. And uh, we must catch up and talk blockchain. Done. Blockchain next time. Oh, yeah. We have to have that one off here. <laughs> <laughs> Thanks, man. Thank you. That is Sam Dastiari. You can find him on Twitter, S-A-M-D-A-S-T-Y-A-R-I. S-A-M-D-A-S-T-Y-A-R-I. I always get a kick when I see you um, tag my guests on Twitter and let them know that you heard them, let them know what you thought of the show, and I'm sure he'll get a kick out of it as well. Uh, a big thank you so much for being here. Thank you for being a part of the show. Thank you for listening to this show. Thank you for being a part of the community, people that listen to this show. I'm absolutely loving all the photographs you're sending me. You can always email me if you like, email at gmail.com. And um, I'm loving the podsy pictures that you do send me, a podsy, P-O-D-S-I-E. Podsy's a, a, it's like a selfie, but a podsy. It's a picture of what you're looking at as you listen to this show. So if you want to send me one, I'd love it. I just get such a kick out of seeing what you do when you're listening to, to this. Got some great ones from all over the world this, this week, um, which was super brilliant. Got a great one from someone walking around the streets of Japan on a, on a break from work, which was pretty killer. That was fun. So, uh, yeah, send them through. Send off your email at gmail.com. And remember this week, if you're feeling kind of shit and your body feels like it's trying to turn against you and you can't escape it, go for a walk, get your blood flowing, unleash those endorphins, let that natural antidepressant kick in. I promise you'll be right as rain. Thanks again for listening. I'll talk to you next week. Until we speak next time, sleep well and dream of beautiful things. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns.